What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. My guest today is Nick Emmons. Nick is the founder of the question and answer protocol, Upshot. Upshot incentivizes people to answer subjective questions. The implications of a product like this are incredibly profound. Upshot can be used to receive answers on NFT valuations, determine if a piece of news is fake, and even help solve issues around decentralized governance. The applications for this type of protocol are literally endless. It was incredible to speak to Nick because he's not only extremely intelligent, but he looks at solving problems in very novel ways. This becomes apparent throughout the episode as we discuss Upshot and the elegant architecture that he's created. This was an exciting conversation that just scratches the surface of the total design space for this type of protocol. Please enjoy my conversation with Nick Emmons. Before diving into today's episode, I want to briefly talk about our sponsor, Whale Street. Whale Street is a decentralized token swap protocol. They can make huge currency swaps happen, or whale swaps as they're called, with very small slippage costs and without crashing the system. They also engineered the largest ever NFT bundle and fractionalized it into the historic B20 tokens. If you want to swap, farm, or find out more, check out whalestreet.xyz. Now let's jump back into the episode. Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so my background is mostly in computer engineering. I'm a software engineer by practice. Um, prior to Upshot, I was leading blockchain development at John Hancock and Manulife, which are, are two of the largest uh, insurance companies in the US and Canada and parts of Asia. Um, and when I joined, their efforts looked a lot different than when I left at the time, at the be- very beginning of 2018, they were building most like what most incumbents were working on at the time, mostly internal applications using blockchain, things that didn't make a ton of sense for this decentralized technology. Um, And during my time there, we built uh, an entirely new engineering team. We kind of shifted the entire company's strategy around blockchain and built the first public blockchain project done by an incumbent at the time. This was before the EY stuff, before the Facebook stuff. Um, We built large partnerships within the crypto space and outside of the crypto space. And so that was a, a pretty uh, kind of unique experience at the time, I think, to to shift the focus of an, a 150-year-old company to think about decentralized technology in the way that it should be thought about in this as this means of sort of ushering in a, a new era of organization, um, in, in that case, specifically to decentralized insurance. That's absolutely incredible. Okay, so who, I don't know if you know this, but who was leading the charge for utilizing blockchains for your old company? Because I feel like it has to be someone pretty high up. And I feel like just generally speaking, this is kind of a broad statement that is not super accurate, but generally speaking, people that are, um, you know, incumbents, like they're not super open to new ideas. And if you were guys were before EY, this is like super, you guys were very, very, very early. And especially to build on a public blockchain versus this private infrastructure, who was leading the charge on that? And what was like their, their pitch to everyone? Yeah, so so part of our strategy in kind of shifting the the company's focus to blockchain was to first convince the highest levels of the organization and, and kind of sell them on the merits of this technology. And so I, I believe our first kind of sponsor, if you will, at the highest levels was the CIO slash COO of John Hancock, which is uh, the U.S. subsidiary of Manulife, the larger insurance company. And from there. Uh, we were able to get the entire C-suite of John Hancock on board and and following that, the entire C-suite of Manulife on board. So there was really kind of unanimous buy-in at the highest levels of both organizations after we got that, that kind of initial sponsor. That's awesome. Okay, so uh, could you explain to me why 
blockchain would be great to use for an insurance company? Yeah, yeah. So insurance is this highly kind of multifaceted operation. It relies on on these disparate functions to all cooperate in an efficient way. Um, and what insurance companies are as well are these highly bureaucratic, highly inefficient organizations in the middle of these these operations. And they their role is to make sure they all interact in a, in a kind of nice way. And it turns out that almost half of the costs of insurance are born from the inefficiencies of that kind of uh, a coordination at the middle of this, that bureaucratic organization. And so if you can redesign the core functions of insurance, and we can go into what those core functions are, but if you can redesign those core functions to operate without the need for that central coordinator um, and, and make them in a way that is sort of intrinsically decentralized, you can cut out close to half of the costs of insurance. And we've thought a lot about this. Um, this, is, this is kind of what I spend most of my time thinking about. Um, it turns out that the act of actually decentralizing those functions actually costs some of the cuts out some of the costs from the functions themselves. So you get this dramatically kind of reduced cost structure for insurance by removing it from the the kind of centralized organization that it, that they're they're kind of trapped within right now. So in your opinion, do you think that there's any chance that traditional insurance providers will will maintain their current structure, or do you think that in the future everything's going to go to a more you know, kind of blockchain based or, you know, distributed ledger based system? I think I think we'll start to see many more uh, insurance companies moving to uh, a decentralized system. I think a lot of the margins are, are kind of reduced by this this coordination. If insurance companies were able to plug into this almost public substrate of insurance functionality and focus on the specific functions that they that they excel at risk assessment, underwriting, claims assessment without the need to manage all of them, then they can capture most of the the kind of uh, benefits of their their kind of operations without the additional costs of needing to organize all of these functions. So would all these functions, would they be kind of outsourced to a community, like a decentralized community of people that would like underwrite, you know, different uh, insurance contracts and those underwriters would get paid in a token or like, you know, just in, in like a dream scenario, how would you roughly, I know this is kind of, this is hard, but how would you roughly design a protocol for insurance in, in like a perfect world? Yeah, so I, I think the the key to it is just building these rails by which anyone can come in and participate in these functions. So those functions, again, are risk assessment, um, underwriting, making sure we're we're constructing a risk portfolio that is sound enough so that with the claims that come in, we have enough money to pay pay them out, and then claims assessment and actually assessing that claims are valid. Uh, I don't think there has to be much more opinion to those rails uh, themselves. I think existing insurance companies will still have very large in-house actuarial departments, very large in-house investment departments, very large in-house claims assessment departments, but instead of plugging into their own systems and being constrained to kind of their own customer base, they can plug into these more public rails that anyone can interact with any other insurance company, um, as well as the sort of larger base of individual community contributors to the different functions. So now as uh, someone with very nuanced expertise in a given uh, insurance vertical, I can profit, I can capture some of the value from that expertise without having to get a job at a large insurance company or waiting for a large insurance company to, to offer insurance products around that vertical. We can, we can 
significantly lower the barriers to how insurance operates, who is able to uh, kind of participate in insurance and the types of insurance products that can exist by just creating these public rails that all insurance providers can interact with. That's awesome. It seems like it's an expansion of the market itself and obviously greater efficiency and then more opportunity for individuals that are kind of working within this uh, public insurance substrate, which is, which is really, really amazing. But okay, so so now going back to you personally, what what attracted you to crypto uh, originally, and were you uh, were you a big fan of you know crypto in general before your previous job, or did you get really uh, into crypto at your previous at your, at your previous position? Yeah, so I got into crypto in about 2013. Um, I was in high school. I was mostly excited about how we how it could kind of drastically allow us to reshape power structures in the world. Now we we could kind of reimagine how organizations existed, how organizations interoperated with each other, even more broadly how how kind of countries and, and nation states took form and interacted with each other. And so I, I think that's what attracted me to crypto initially. And and as you fall down this this rabbit hole and start to see what's possible with it, you see this ability to experiment with areas that have been historically difficult to experiment with and experimentation is is sort of the catalyst for innovation it's the catalyst for advancement and so now we can experiment with a plethora of new governance mechanisms in the span of a few months versus the span of a few centuries and we can experiment with with different financial mechanisms and all these different types of mechanisms that that have been kind of rooted in this these slow innovation cycles um, and, and so I think it's just a catalyst for advancement across these kind of historically slow to change industries. That's awesome. Okay, so what are your views on, on non-fungible tokens and when did you first learn about them? And also have your views changed from when you first learned about them to today? Yeah, so I think initially I saw NFTs as most people saw them, this this kind of means of, of tokenizing very specific assets on the blockchain, mostly art initially and collectibles and things like this. Um, they acted as, as we saw with, with CryptoKitties in 2017, this, this nice means of onboarding new users into the ecosystem. But as you start to dive into NFTs a bit more, you start to see this entire ecosystem of new types of products and new types of assets uh, open up that can now be represented in a decentralized world. Tokens and, and fungible assets uh, allow us to represent a, a specific vertical of assets, mostly around financial assets. We can rebuild financial primitives and build new financial vehicles in a decentralized world. But now that we have non-fungible tokens, we can allow people to capture value from their art. And then more kind of impactfully, arguably, we can build very exotic types of insurance products. We can start to move identity on chain. One thing that I'm particularly interested in around NFTs is how they can contribute to building sort of permissionless reputation systems. Um, we, we can start to move kind of the rest of the spectrum of assets that exist in the real world that can be ported into a decentralized setting and benefit from being ported to that setting um, through these non-fungible tokens. And so those are kind of my views on NFTs and how they've progressed over time. So you briefly touch upon this permissionless reputation system. And I feel like that is, uh, at least for me, and I think for a lot of other people in this space, the holy grail of, of it, it would solve so many issues if we did have some sort of on-chain reputation uh, mechanism, right? And so I, I would love to hear just your thoughts on how NFTs could facilitate a permissionless reputation system within this ecosystem. Yeah, so what we have in the blockchain is this transaction graph, and it, it gives us this 
this very strong foundation to build uh, very nuanced and permissionless reputation systems on top of. So you can think of it as uh, you, you can picture yourself using a, a set of DeFi protocols and then reputation kind of uh, definers, people defining what good reputation is for specific verticals, saying I will value the, the participation in uh, Uniswap is this much, I'll, I'll value the participation in Compound is this much, and, and MakerDAO is this much, et cetera. Um, and, and we can begin to just examine this transaction graph using kind of the centrality measure of your choice, um, the way we've thought about it in the, the, the kind of measure that we, we find to be the most robust is personalized pay drink. So now we can view this transaction graph place different weights on edges based on the these different interactions that we we kind of weight in different uh, with different importances and get this robust view of someone's reputation in a system relative to others and so it creates what the, the what the internet has created for uh, kind of building reputation for different websites by uh, judging links between them and weighting those links in different ways. We can do that with interactions between different protocols and between different users via this transaction graph. And that's something, uh, that's actually something we're building uh, at Upshot to a, a means of kind of generalizing this and consuming this in a, a pretty easy way. Okay, so yeah, now to the you know main topic at hand, uh, you are the founder of Upshot, and I love to hear what is Upshot and why is it exciting? Yeah, so Upshot is a question and answer protocol that leverages a new field of mechanism design called peer prediction to incentivize people to answer subjective questions honestly. Uh, it's it's kind of fundamentally unique in that it's leveraging this, this very new field of mechanism design, this very powerful field of mechanism design that enables a number of applications, uh, both within and outside of the crypto space. Uh, a few examples are NFT price discovery, decentralized insurance, content curation, so identifying uh, if a piece of content is, a uh, piece of news is fake or not, things like that. Uh, even, even applications in decentralized governance, prediction markets, stuff like that. All right, so so how exactly does Upshot work? I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, so it leverages this field of, of mechanism design called peer prediction, which is focused on eliciting truthful responses from people when we don't have access to a ground truth. So this could mean questions that are fundamentally subjective, you and I's opinions on something, or questions that do have a correct answer, but we don't have access to the ground truth. So did it rain yesterday? Um, we don't we don't know if it rained yesterday on the blockchain. We need a means of of verifying that. Um, and how it does this is it works by considering the structure of information between peers' responses themselves, um, and then placing a score on those responses based on a mutual information measure of their responses. So uh, an ex a concrete example would be you and I would answer a batch of questions, say four questions about what we think the value of different NFTs are. We would then compare our answers to these questions line by line. Uh, we would uh, essentially construct these, these answer matrices from these as a means of calculating this mutual information. We're essentially building a correlation profile between our answers to, to determine uh, what the correlation between the correct answers to these questions are. Uh, and then we would uh, take the determinants of these matrices and score them. And the scores output from this would be uh, essentially a mutual information score of our answers and would determine how 
how uh, honest we were in answering them. And it has this, this has a couple of nice properties in that one, it's dominantly truthful. So there is no strategy either of us can take in answering these questions that's more profitable than being honest. And it's also informed truthful, which means there's no strategy either of us can take that is more profitable than expending effort to provide the honest response to a question. So if some question requires some additional research, some additional consideration, um, it behooves us to do that additional research, to give it that extra consideration. That's how we're going to maximize our payment from this. Okay, so okay, uh, if we're gonna dumb that down for myself because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm I have a small brain. All right, so so I, I want to say that it is sunny in Chicago. Okay, <laughs> so it's it's sunny where I live. So I go on Upshot and I say, or no, so someone is asking, is it sunny in Chicago? I'm in <laughs> Chicago, so I can say yes, it is in fact sunny. You know, I'm I'm 100 positive, right? So like, how take me through like really simply like how I like sure I know that, but how do other people you know? come the consensus that, okay, Andrew is telling the truth. Yeah. So you would answer a set of these questions. Is it sunny in Chicago? Did it rain on Tuesday in Chicago? Things like this, these similar types of questions. Um, and these questions have to be similar from kind of a informational structure uh, or a structural perspective, because that's how we're assessing correlation. Um, and, and then we would compare your answers to those questions to other people's answers to those same questions. And in comparing them, we're essentially identifying the correlation between them. And you don't know the answers that are going to be included in that kind of batch of questions that are being scored. And you don't know um, the, the answers that others have provided beforehand. And so everyone is incentivized to be honest when providing those answers. And by identifying the correlation between them, we can um, accurately kind of identify honesty in, in answers to those questions and therefore reward honesty in kind of a, a kind of dominant way. Okay, so okay, so if, if I say it's it's sunny today in Chicago, and then maybe the question will also ask, uh, did it rain yesterday in Chicago, and then the day before that, did it snow, right? And let's pretend that those are all those, those things all happened. So I go, yes, it snowed, then it rained, and now it's sunny, right? Um, so so you guys would see that other people are also responding with those, yes, it snowed, yes, it rained, now it's sunny, and so <clears> they would say, okay, these people are truthful, and because of this money people are saying these these answers that all correlate with each other therefore this must be the truth yes it doesn't strictly kind of reward conformity though so if you were to answer a set of these questions and lie on one of them or answer no on one of them or if there was some disagreements between you and others the the use of these batches of questions by using multiple questions to build these correlation profiles. Um, we can identify sort of useful disagreements between people and sort of holes in the in the kind of uh, truthful responses to say there's a disagreement here. And then furthermore, is this disagreement as a result of someone lying or not? Or is this disagreement a result of uh, differing preferences in, in one's uh, kind of view on something or differing uh, kind of input parameters? Were they on 22nd Street versus 10th Street? Was it raining there or, and was it not raining on the other things like that? That's, that's what's powerful about these mechanisms is they aren't strictly kind of Keynesian beauty contests where everyone is incentivized to predict what others are saying. Um, they do reward these useful disagreements um, in, in kind of nuanced ways which provides us a, a big leap forward in incentivizing truthful responses to subjective questions. Uh, what is my incentive to to go on Upshot and start answering these questions? A, a, am I getting rewarded a token for doing so? And then also, 
if I go on there and I'm just like, I just want to cause chaos, right? Um, and I'm just going to answer everything I can wrong. Will I get dinged like either by reputation or monetarily? Like what will happen to, to my, uh, I don't know, to, to my, my profile or something? Yeah. So you'll, you'll just get dinged like you're, you by not answering, uh, in this kind of informative and honest way by not being informed, truthful in your responses, um, you're leaving money on the table, depending on how dishonest you're being. And so you're getting dinged from a reputation perspective in that you're going to be selected to have your answers considered less frequently. You're going to influence uh, resolutions to questions less frequently, and you're just going to earn less money. Your, your influence is going to decrease over time. And there are also more explicit measures uh, users can take to just kind of exclude you from groups altogether or place very explicit kind of uh, discounts on your reputation versus others if you are acting in this way. To, and how people are compensated in the system is, is somewhat multifaceted. Uh, one, people can attach monetary value to questions themselves. So if I'm coming in and I want to get the answer to did it rain in Chicago on Tuesday, I can say I, I want to place $10 behind this question. I'm going That $10 is then going to be dispersed to the people who uh, are considered for answering that question. And that's how they get paid. The initial way uh, people will get paid in the system, and I think it's a, a fairly robust way, is via people staking groups themselves. So questions are categorized into different groups because, as I mentioned before, in order to identify and build these correlation profiles, we need questions to be similar to each other so that they're, they're, the kind of structure of their information it acts as this constant in, in identifying correlation. Uh, and so people can stake in specific groups. A group may be the price of different crypto punks um, and people who want to kind of incentivize insights into those prices can can stake some amount of money there that money is then invested into yield earning protocols on chain and the yield is distributed to the users who answer questions in that group based on how honest they are at any point the stakers can pull out their principal with no risk of loss to it um, they're just foregoing earning the yield themselves and so what we can do is then incentivize that, that kind of uh, staking functionality via a token or via some fee that gets taken off the top from the yield that goes to some treasury, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, and then there will likely be a, a token at some point that uh, further aids in subsidizing those kind of early network effects of the system. Okay, that that is amazing. Okay, so let's say that, you know, I'm all about, I want to know all about NFT valuations, right? So I can go to the NFT valuations group. I can take, I don't know, let's say a hundred bucks, let's just say, and I can stake, stake that to that group. And then that'll go into DeFi protocols generating yield. And then that yield is what is paid to the uh, people that answer the questions. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's similar to how pool together works, but instead of a, a random person winning all of the, the money uh, every week or so, it's being diverted to the people answering questions proportionally to how honest they were during that period of time. That's so cool. Yeah, because my initial 100 bucks, I can take that out whenever I want. And and I still have that fully. It's not like I, I give that as well to the people that are answering the questions. So it's like, it's a very easy and cheap way for myself to get answers to NFT valuation. That's exactly right. And and a nice thing it achieves in the kind of token distribute when when token uh, allocation kind of comes into effect, is it strikes a nice balance between kind of the properties of pool one in the yield farming sense and pool two in the yield farming sense and that pool one is often used as a means of incentivizing different 
people from different communities to stake their token uh, and they'll get some portion of whatever new token is, is being farmed. But that staked capital isn't being used for anything useful within the protocol. It's not contributing to liquidity and things like that. Um, and then pool two is nice because it creates much deeper markets for this new token, but it exposes the people farming that token to impermanent loss and these other risks of loss of funds. By doing this, we can kind of strike a balance in that people are providing capital um, in kind of a risk-free way. They can pull out their principal at any point. They aren't exposed to impermanent loss, things like that. But it's also providing this very tangible uh, benefit to the system and that now people answering questions have this hard capital they can earn for answering questions. So I, I think it strikes a nice balance between kind of the existing uh, approaches to to kind of liquidity mining, yield farming, whatever, however you want to frame it. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely incredible the, the kind of the, the setup you have here. But okay, so let's say that let's say that there's only like five people in the NFT valuation group. Is that is that enough people to get solid answers, or will the answers be like super, just kind of you know not not anything of value? Like, is there a critical mass of, of answers that you need in order to get some some truthful? Not not truthful, but some really solid data, I guess. Yeah, so I, I think things always improve with volume. Theoretically, like at, at the mechanism level, for the truth-telling incentives to uphold, you need two things. You need at least three people answering questions or, or, or kind of like a minimum quorum size of that calculated via similar ways to incentivize truthfulness as the dominant strategy. And you need people to answer at least two C questions, where C is the number of possible answers to a question. A yes, no question has C of two. So for yes, no questions, we need at least three people to answer four questions. What we can do further than that, and, and this is uh, this is kind of a, a kind of common practice uh, across mechanisms that try to incentivize subjective consensus is questions can specify a minimum quorum size that has to be met for them to be, be resolved at all. And so if uh, we're evaluating the price of an NFT that is worth $30,000 or that people believe is worth $30,000, then we can just ensure that a resolution is not created for that question until we have at least $30,000 of, of kind of nominal value staked in answering those questions. Um, it's the, the same thing with not wanting to resolve prediction markets if the the market cap of the token being used to resolve those prediction markets is less than the potential money that could be made by by uh, a, a specific resolution in that market so the conflict of interests kind of go away by instating minimum quorum requirements when applicable okay okay so i mean this is just like an, an incredible protocol okay so what yeah yeah i mean i i guess like because i was going to say what what problems or what you know yeah what problems can upshot solve but really it seems like basically any question uh that you want answered or something figured out you can kind of just go here so it's almost like a uh, not really a google not really a prediction market it's almost like a google of prediction markets in the sense that <laughs> you can like search for like nft valuation stuff right so you're searching for there for, for that kind of topic then you go in there and you can find answers so like what what if you had to uh, analogize upshot like to something what would you connect it to i think it's it's useful to think about it as sort of an incentivized quora quora gives us like a, a platform to 
like get insights and get answers to really specific questions. And it's nice because we have all of these prominent experts uh, from different areas answering the questions that they have kind of unique insights into. Um, and what Upshot does is it decentralizes that entire process. It removes the need for identity uh, or kind of uh, like siloed platforms with these sort of inherent incentives, to be honest, by like examining the structure of the information in those questions and answers themselves. So that's that's what I would uh, tie it to most closely. I think I think that's much more accurate than my Google of prediction markets. I think incentivized Quora, it makes a lot more sense. So, okay, so, you know, the, the potential market here is just, just like unlimited. Like really, it's, it's basically unlimited. So what is your go-to-market strategy? Because you can't just start with, hey, we're doing everything. You got to kind of focus on some sort of niche. Mm -hmm. um, what, what are you kind of thinking about as your go-to-market strategy? Yeah, so we've built this general protocol now, and our, our kind of overall strategy is now to build very specialized products in specific verticals that it's especially applicable to um, that kind of expand on the feature set of the protocol itself. So creating these really pleasant user experiences, adding additional insights into the kind of data that's being input into the system, things like that. Um, and, and so the first product we're focused on right now is around NFT price evaluations, NFT appraisals. Um, NFTs are a type of asset that is both non-fungible and low velocity, which means that we can't discover their prices very efficiently just from transfers of ownership. NFTs don't transfer hands very often, and one NFT transferring hands doesn't say a whole lot about what the value of another NFT is. So in solving this, we looked to kind of the real world, I guess, um, and, and what assets are similar to NFTs there. And we identified two types of assets as being similar, both real estate and physical art. Both of those are both non-fungible and low velocity, and they rely very heavily on appraisals as uh, kind of their price discovery mechanism. The problem with appraisals in the real world is that they rely heavily on identity, reputation, different firms, and, and kind of the, the, the frictions that come with needing to like house appraisers under specific firms. Um, but what we have is a decentralized question and answer protocol that incentivizes people to answer subjective questions honestly. So we thought it was a pretty perfect vertical to go after initially. Um, and we're really passionate about the NFT space. We think price discovery is this big blocker um, standing in the way of NFTs kind of progressing to where they could be or could go. And uh, so, yeah, that's the first product we're building. That's awesome. Okay, so when, when do you guys launch? So the, the product's built right now. We're um, actively opening up the platform to a, a sort of closed set of appraisers right now. Uh, we'll be doing this sort of closed beta period over the next few weeks and then opening up opening up more broadly after that. And then from there, we'll be expanding the feature sets a bit more. Um, we'll be building adjacent products that, that kind of leverage this NFT appraisal uh, system. So uh, you can think art collection DAOs, NFT indices, uh, NFT synthetics, debt underwritten against NFTs. There are a bunch of these, these kind of ways to marry DeFi and NFTs once we have efficient price discovery mechanisms for them. And so our plan is to build those adjacent products and partner with existing projects working in that space uh, to to kind of push NFTs more into the limelight from a, a kind of what their role is in DeFi. Love that. Love that. All right. So I was on your website and it says there's one small, you know, kind of like really quick statement that says that Upshot can predict the future. 
So I'd, I'd love to more, learn more about that and kind of what you mean exactly by, by saying that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you can think of Upshot as kind of like a polling, like a decentralized polling protocol too, I guess. And polls are used to predict the future. Um, I'm specifically referring to uh, the alternative they they kind of propose to prediction markets. Prediction markets are focused markets on specific events that allow us to predict the future about something. Um, but they have a lot of known shortcomings. The primary one being liquidity. Prediction markets often don't have a lot of liquidity, and so it's difficult to interact with them. And therefore, the kind of like uh, accuracy of of their predictions um, suffers from it. They also suffer from these discrete time slots in which they exist. So a prediction market will exist from January 1st to January 31st, and then an entirely new one has to spin up. Price discovery has to occur again. Liquidity has to move over, things like that. Um, it doesn't make for a very good UX, and again, it impacts the accuracy of those predictions. Um, a preface, I'm a very big fan of prediction markets as a mechanism. I think they're extremely powerful, and they have a lot of nice use cases. But just to highlight the alternative upshot, proposes is we can actually just ask the same question over and over again on Upshot on a regular cadence, say hourly, daily, what, whatever you'd like, um, and then get this sort of real-time prediction about what that event that is being predicted, what the, the kind of question being asked is. And what we get is one, this means of predicting the future that requires far less liquidity than prediction markets, but two, this sort of perpetual prediction market, because there there's there's not a discrete time slot in which that question exists. That question can be asked at this cadence or at varying cadences again and again forever, as long as people would like to predict it. We can constantly ask what the weather is going to be next week to the system and constantly have this means of predicting the future. We can do this for a, a number of exciting applications that uh, significantly lower liquidity costs. Upshot seems very heavy on the human capital kind of side of things because it's really, you know, in theory, it should be pretty hard to automate subjective, the answers to, to subjective questions, right? It's not like, what is one plus one? It's like, you know, it's more of these, okay, what is this valued at when we don't actually know the information? So who, who are the, who like, who are the users for Upshot? I, I know it's like anyone can do it and, and join it, but like, who do you imagine is going to be the most active on these platforms? Will it be like people in like low income countries where, you know, uh, 20 bucks to them is just a, like a, a massive salary? Or do you just imagine like, um, like I, I don't know. I just love to hear like who, who is the ideal user in your opinion? Yeah, I think it, I think it depends largely on the groups. For example, with NFT appraisals, um, we're really focused on kind of onboarding the big collectors in the NFT space, the big big holders of CryptoPunks, the big collectors of of NFT art, things like that, um, because these are the people that that know the values of these NFTs the most. Um, as we move into insurance. A big focus is going to be onboarding um, large insurance companies, actuarial departments, their claims assessment departments, as well as experts around the specific insurance products we're building. Uh, for example, auditors for smart contract risk insurance um, and, and people like that. Um, so I, I think it lar largely matters uh, what the group is focused on, what types of questions are being asked, what an expert in those groups looks like. And then quickly to touch on the, the human capital side of things, I think that is a large part of it for most groups, but um, it most of this can be largely automated as well. For example, Etherscan could uh, start answering questions about what the kind of activity of a specific on-chain event is or, or uh, what the price of some asset is or things like this on a regular basis by just interacting with the protocol itself. They have a bunch of data around this. It doesn't require this uh, explicit human effort to to be expended. Um, 
they can automate this process largely via the, the infrastructure they already have set up. And I think different ML algorithms can, can kind of plug into this and start predicting things and answering subjective questions uh, on their own. We could have groups that are, are solely comprised of, of artificial intelligence around specific topics. Um, and, and so, yeah, that, that's how I'd, I'd answer that question. Wow. Okay. I mean, th that's absolutely incredible. I can, uh, n now that you mentioned the, the kind of the automation looking at EtherScan, that makes a ton, ton of sense to me. And uh, yeah, just like the applicability of this is just crazy, crazy big. Yeah, I can see so many different use cases. But okay, so so what are some risks or like attack vectors that um, you kind of can see now? Because, um, you know, I, I guess one super, super basic one is if I get 10 of my buddies together, we go on an NFT valuation thing and we value, we purposely undervalue the asset that, that people are asking about. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, the person putting up that initial capital for that question, the 100 bucks, they won't lose anything because, you know, they, they just put up that capital and they can take it back. But then we all get paid the uh, from the DeFi, you know, a, a interest, and you know, we we purposely answer the question not truthfully. So like, but we all did it together. So like, there's no other uh, people that are answering it truthfully in in this kind of one hypothetical scenario. So w what are some other attack vectors? And is what I just laid out is that accurate at all, or is there like a, a way to, to mitigate that? Yeah. So I, I would say collusion or or kind of bribery more specifically. Both of those are kind of the main attack vectors of the system getting a group of your buddies together and answering uh, a question in a specific way or accepting a bribe to answer a, a question in a specific way um, are kind of the, the most pressing issues we have to consider uh, when when upholding sort of the, the accuracy of the system and, and the truth-telling incentives. So one thing we do to mitigate that is we use randomness very heavily in the system. So for a set of questions, uh, questions don't get resolved outside of these events called scoring rounds, which is when the peer prediction scoring rule is actually invoked. It's when people's answers to uh, a batch of questions is actually scored. And from that, resolutions are created. These scoring rounds aren't run on everyone in a given group, though. What we do is we randomly select a small committee of members, say between three to five members from a group, and then we use a set of their answers um, to plug into this peer prediction scoring rule, the DMI mechanism we're using to uh, output the res resolutions to those questions and, and in turn the scores for these um, users' answers. And by doing this, and by having the batch of questions unknown prior to the scoring, or like what questions are going to be used for scoring, it increases the cost of attack significantly because now you can't just get a group of 10 friends together, answer a, a set of questions in a kind of coordinated way and know you're going to be the ones that are considered for resolving that question. You have to kind of, you, you have to have a, a level of influence in the group that is significantly larger than than what you would have if, if everyone was scored to impact the resolution of that question. So we, we've run some simulations on this um, and some early simulations suggest that to influence the answer to a question with a likelihood of 99%, like you have a 99% chance of succeeding in that manipulation would require having approximately 29,000% of the kind of total stake for a group. So it's very expensive to manipulate the answers to these questions within kind of well-known groups and whatnot. Now, in the scenario you're describing where you're spinning up kind of a, a special group where only you guys are members of uh, and, and you have full control over this, so you're guaranteed to fill the committees, 
I think people just wouldn't wouldn't listen to that group over time. They'd see that it was outputting uh, bad answers or that it was kind of controlled by this coalition of individuals. And they would just start pointing questions they're asking and pointing resolutions they're consuming to different groups that have higher volume. It goes back to that kind of higher volume leads to higher accuracy, needing minimum quorum requirements, stuff like that. Okay, awesome. So, so basically that coalition of bad actors, their reputations would get dinged. Everyone would see that. And then, therefore, stop trusting those that group of people. Exactly. Yeah, and okay. and even even before that, in a kind of proactive measure, the random sampling, this committee selection would sort of prohibit them from even getting to the point where they could create these bad resolutions and get those those dinged reputations. It would be very difficult for them to even get to that point in a like a, a denser group. Okay. Awesome. All right. So so have you raised capital for Upshot? And if you have. And I would love to hear just how was that process and, and any, any kind of details you could provide uh, anyone listening that, that it does want to raise capital for, the, for their project. Yeah. So uh, earlier this year, we raised uh, a seed round. It was co-led by Draper VC and Blockchain Capital. And uh, there was participation from Distributed Global. And uh, we got an angel check from the Bison Trails founders as well. Um, and yeah, it was we originally had this idea that we should build Upshot and and like point this peer prediction stuff specifically at decentralized insurance. That's our background. That's where most of our network is. We think it has huge impacts for insurance. And so that's what a lot of um, our focus was in those early rounds in, in kind of raising that round. And then as we've been building the system out, as we've been seeing the kind of generalizable properties of it, we decided to, like, I guess, generalize it a bit and build for a set of verticals that we see uh, kind of immense value accruing over the, the next several years, NFTs, insurance still, uh, potentially governance and prediction markets, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I this was the this is my first kind of endeavor as an entrepreneur. So it was all pretty new for me in fundraising. But um, I think we're using such a, a kind of unique uh, field of mechanism design that it's it has pretty con- compelling value propositions out of the box, like uh, for a field that prides itself on bringing esoteric academic ideas into the mainstream and creating products around these, um, for it to have missed such what I think is a powerful field of mechanism design in peer prediction, I think it, it made kind of selling the potential of, of this protocol much easier during fundraising. Yeah. So, so basically, you know, for you and this idea, fundraising was sounded very simple. I mean, very easy because, you know, there's uh, for example, like I, I fundraise and I've, I've spoken to, I've done like 300 pitches for, for my fund and, uh, and, you know, like a very, very small percentage of those people actually are, are interested. Right. But for something like this, where it's so widely applicable and, and also, as you mentioned, people in the crypto space has really overlooked the, the peer prediction. It seems like it was, it was pretty easy, but would you, would you kind of agree that it was a pretty easy process for yourself? I'd say so. Yeah, it, it was, it was, yeah, I, I'd say it was, it was kind of net easy to a degree. Um, thanks. Thanks to the uniqueness. Did you speak to just a ton of different firms or was it just like a couple of people and then good to go? Yeah. Yeah. So um, actually like blockchain capital, who was our initial lead in the round was, was one of the first um, people we talked to. It might've been the first meeting we took or the second meeting we took. So um, things moved pretty quickly. Uh, we did talk to uh, a handful of, of firms, but for the most part, things move pretty quickly without having to, to talk to too many different firms. All right. So uh, yeah, do you, do you have any new, I mean, you know, the product hasn't launched quite yet, but do you have any new, I don't know, features or anything that you want to 
just share a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, surrounding Upshot? Sure. Yeah. So we have a, a couple kind of adjacent tools that we're um, releasing. One we're releasing um, in the next week or two, and then the other is slightly further down the roadmap. But the, the one we're releasing very shortly is this sort of kind of general database tool for interacting and queer and uh, kind of capturing the efficiency of centralized databases um, in a decentralized file network. So you can actually kind of sync an entire SQL or Postgres, da Postgres database to Skynet uh, and then query elements in that in that database as efficiently as you might query something kind of on a server you're hosting yourself. Uh, and then the other tool, which is a little bit farther down the roadmap, is this kind of reputation tool for examining the transaction graph um, and placing weights on on different types of interactions, applying personalized page rank to those interactions, and then uh, getting a, a kind of permissionless and, and robust view of one's reputation. Uh, and that's something we'll be leveraging in kind of weighting people's influences in different groups on Upshot as well. As far as features tied to the specific NFT product, we're, we're just going to continue to kind of build out the data analytics of the platform. So improving how, how we interpret the resolutions from questions in the system, and which will improve the kind of accuracy of price predictions, of price valuations. And we'll also be building many of these on-chain applications uh, I alluded to earlier tied to NFTs. So NFT indices, debt underwritten against NFTs, uh, art collection, DAO, stuff like that. What What is the, you know, grand, grand, you know, not 100-year vision, but some, what, what is the ideal scenario for Upshot and where do you see it in like, I don't know, 20 years from now or something like that? I, I see it as this, this sort of like core piece of infrastructure in the, the kind of technical landscape and this fundamentally new kind of protocol that one allows people to capture value from their expertise and their insights in a way that they weren't able to before. Uh, and two, that allows anyone to sort of gain uh, insights into what the, the crowd or what a set of experts may think about some event or, or some like future thing happening or some assets price, things like that. I think I think where Upshot kind of fits into the fold in in a, a kind of broader sense is it fills in the gaps where the open market falls short. We have this great thing in the open market and that it allows us to aggregate insights from people and spit out what is kind of the agreed upon value for some asset. But they have these known shortcomings similar to prediction markets, just a bit broader in that they have liquidity constraints. They require some level of information symmetry that, that isn't always present in, in many topics. And by using this much more capital efficient means of reaching consensus on questions, we can start to fill in the gaps of where the open market falls short. So so when you say you see it as a kind of a, a core piece of uh, technology kind of going forward, is this like, mm -hmm. do, you, do you think it's, you know, I mean, again, we're dreaming here, so we can kind of be crazy. <laughs> uh, are, we, are you thinking like Google scale for, for Upshot? I, I mean, I, I don't want to to uh, count my, my chickens before they hatch, but that would be nice. I, I think its applicability is general enough, is broad enough, and, and the kind of power of what's being proposed is is significant enough that it, it could reach something like that um i i i think what we're building is this sort of uh kind of perpetual piece of infrastructure that is not controlled by a single organization that enables people to capture value in ways that they could not before and in many different areas i think the kind of scale in which that value exists is massive and so i could see upshot becoming this this 
very large piece of technical infrastructure in the, the decades to come. That's awesome. Okay. Well, folks, you heard it here first. Upshot is next Google. <laughs> no, I'm I'm All right, man. Well, well, this has just been this has been amazing. I, I want to keep going, but we, we got to jump into closing questions now. Cool. All right. So what is your single favorite NFT that you own? Uh, so I actually own uh, one of the original TBTC deposit tokens for that like V1 that was launched for a couple of days. Uh, and uh, instead of redeeming it for the, the capital that I locked up to get it, I decided to keep it as a memento. So uh, that's that's probably my most prized NFT because there can never be any more. And it's uh, it's just kind of a, a nice memory. Wait, so so I'm sorry, you said TBTC? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the synthetic Bitcoin that uh, uh, Keep Network built. Oh, so 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 that that's an NFT itself. I thought I I didn't realize that. Uh, the the TBTC itself isn't, but the the kind of deposit token to to create the the Bitcoin is similar to oh. how uh, like a, a vault or previously known as CDPs on MakerDAO are each kind of their own unique things. Very cool. Okay. All right, what is something that you'd like to see happen, or something that you think needs to happen to the crypto or NFT ecosystem? I may be biased here, but I, I and this may be just just make me sound like a broken record, but I think more efficient price discovery mechanisms, having closer to real-time price feeds for NFTs is the biggest thing standing in their way from progressing further than they are right now. We can really see this marriage of DeFi and NFTs if we have more uh, real-time price feeds for them. And so... That's that's what I'd like to see happen and, and like to contribute to that as much as we can at Upshot. Awesome. Okay, so what are the largest barriers to the adoption of crypto and NFTs? I think, again, it's price discovery. That's a big one. I also think there there just needs to be, um, like, we're seeing big progressions in this in, in new wallets and, and new fiat on-ramps and things like that. But as, as more outsiders enter the space, there will just have to be kind of improved on-ramps for getting them into the space. But for NFTs specifically, I, again, think, price discovery is the the biggest, if not like the last remaining blocker to adoption for them. All right, last question. Where do you see the world of crypto and NFTs in three years? Yeah, I see uh, NFTs and kind of fungible assets living alongside each other much in, in a much more ubiquitous way. For example, I, I, I'd like to see and I, I could very easily see DAI being collateralized by NFTs as well as these other assets. Um, existing DeFi protocols just using NFTs as a means of like significantly diversifying the risk that the the protocol is assuming. I think a lot of the times with fungible assets and especially in the kind of nascency of the industry of today, we expose ourselves to too much correlated risk, which is the sort of existential threat on on DeFi and and of these different protocols. And what NFTs can do us is they can really kind of expand the the diversity of those risks in a significant way so that we can uh, uh, just kind of minimize those existential threats. Awesome, Nick. Well, th this has just been an absolute journey. I, I loved it. <laughs> um, I think what you're building here is is incredible. And I, I loved hearing again about, about your background and how you were working for, you know, this over a hundred year old company that was uh, kind of first in, in, into foray into uh, public blockchain. So that's incredible. And then just hearing again, how you went from there to now what you're building with Upshot is, is just crazy. And the applicability of it is, is literally, I, th I think it's unlimited. I'm pretty sure. And, uh, and I'm really, really excited to, uh, 
to kind of watch your progress in this and uh, yeah, see you build, you know, the, the Google of the future. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been a, a really fun conversation. Of course. Of course. So if anyone wanted to, you know, reach out to yourself or learn more about Upshot, where should they go and what should they do? Yeah. So the best places to reach us right now or to follow along are uh, Twitter and Medium. You can follow us on Twitter and Medium, both at Upshot HQ. Uh, you can also visit our, our website and, and, and just kind of get updates via the newsletter. Uh, and then to follow me specifically, um, I'm mostly on Twitter at Nick underscore Emmons, E-M-M-O-N-S. So, yeah. Awesome, Nick. Thanks so much. And I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Me too. Me too. Thanks again. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.